Today's episode is brought to you by Geico. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you know, what's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's insurance or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around the house. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. And we thank them for sponsoring today's podcast. Adfreeshows.com is the place for all your favorite meet and greets and not with just any wrestling talents. No, I'm talking hall of famers and legends and two of your favorites will be live, ready to talk to you face to face next week over at adfreeshows.com who you may ask, how about the enforcer Arn Anderson? Yes, he's a four horseman original and he will be joining the ad free shows. My push and top guy tears next Next week for a full interactive Q&A experience like never before, where you can ask questions that are on your mind. Plus, that's not all. We're bringing Tony Schiavone on to ad-free shows, and he's going to be live as well. That's right. Both Tony and Arn, very same week over at adfreeshows.com. So make sure you're either a my push or a top guy tier, and you'll be able to take part in these can't miss freaking awesome experiences. And maybe you're thinking, I've heard enough about all these interactive experiences. I want to meet people in person. Well, adfreeshows.com is your hookup because we're about to launch our first ever Top Guy Weekend in Chicago, Illinois. It's all going down Labor Day weekend, and it's going to be a spectacular two-day event filled with experiences and meet and greets that will leave our top guys buzzing for weeks, hell months. So join us now and make sure you're a part of all these live Q and A's and future in-person events over at adfreeshows.com. You know how many people hate Eric Bischoff? Turns out even more people hate Steven Singer. Finding that person you want to spend the rest of your life with is great. But we hate all the pressure of what's next. Of course, there's the nonsense engagement talk, but then there's the pressure from actually shopping for a ring, the hassle, the haggling, finding a store to trust, trying to figure out what the hell the four C's are, the discounts, the sales, the coupons, the styles, and all that other jazz. But at least those are all fantastic reasons for putting off getting engaged. And that's why guys really hate Steven singer. He takes away every excuse in the book for not buying the ring. And he makes it so easy. I hate Steven singer. You see, Steven singer is a Philly jeweler. That's been making it too easy to buy real diamonds for over four decades. He specializes in diamond engagement rings and has a staff of real experts, real jewelers, and real people that are ready to help you find the perfect ring at the perfect price. There's no call center. There's no sales. There's no haggling. There's no codes. There's no discounts, just the best possible price guaranteeing the best value every single day. Check Steven out at the other corner of eighth and Walnut and Philly or online at I hate Steven singer.com always with fast and free shipping. That's I hate Steven singer.com.
Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am just doing great. It's hot as hell here in Cody today. Has been for the last couple days. But uh, out here in the bunkhouse, it's nice and cool and cozy. So I'm doing great. And you know what I'm doing right now, though, as we're right before we got ready to record, typically you and I record early on either Saturday morning or Sunday morning. Yep. Um, I got a little backed up this weekend, so I had to rearrange my my schedule a bit and you accommodated me, which I appreciate. And now it's uh, 3.30 in the afternoon here as we're recording this to drop first thing tomorrow morning. But I had about an hour before uh, we were ready to go here. So I got some American Wagyu beef steaks. Oh, look at you. And I am marinating them in a combination of olive oil, black coffee infused vinegar, a little bit of garlic, a little bit of honey. They're marinating as we speak. And as soon as we wrap, I'm going to go out and uh, fire up. Actually, I'm going to fire up the Rectech while we're in here doing the podcast, because with my Rectech, I can do that. With my Rectech app, I can literally tell, turn the grill on. I can adjust the temperature. It's amazing. So while we're podcasting, I'm going to start my reverse sear steak, and I'm going to record it because I get a lot of questions about it. People always, and really, it's quite easy. Um, it's not complicated. It's a you know, little bit different, but I'm going to uh, film the whole thing and then we'll put it up and uh, people can watch how I reverse sear an American Wagyu sirloin. Can't wait. I can't believe you're marinating Wagyu. Like to me, I'm, I'm throwing Wagyu on with maybe salt and pepper at most. Look at you. Well, I'm actually going to do, I'm going to do it two ways. Um, I, cause I'm the same way with, you know, I, I, you have a good quality meat. I tend not to over season it or marinate it or get too creative with it because when you have a really good cut of meat, you like to be able to taste the flavor, yeah. especially if you're able to prepare it appropriately or correctly. So I, I decided I'm going to, tr- I wanted to do something different yeah. you know, to, to put it out there, um, for rec tech. So I'm go- I, I bought four steaks. Two of them are marinating. The other two, I will season them slightly about 20 minutes before I put them on. And then we're going to do a little taste test to see who likes what the best. Well, I'm sure they're both going to be great, but, uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. And by the way, I got to, uh, I got to introduce you to Wagyu hot dogs next time you're in town. No, you did. When I was in Huntsville, whatever it was right after Christmas or I don't know, not, not long ago. We were both, Mrs. B and I were in Huntsville with you and Megan, <clears throat> and you told us all about it. And we actually ordered some and we had them for Christmas dinner down in uh, Clearwater when we were visiting our kids. I mean, our Christmas dinner was, well, we had a couple of different things, but one of the main courses was Wagyu beef hot dogs. And they were fantastic. It seems crazy, right? Cause like I, Megan was like, I don't eat hot dogs. I'm like, I don't really either. Unless I'm at a game or something and it's been steamed in, you know, the deal. So, mm-hmm. but I'm like, but this is different. This is a Wagyu hot dog. It was a game changer. And we're going to be talking about a game changer today. We're doing something a little different, Eric. You know, you and I have really been wallering in all things NWO and just celebrating the 25th anniversary of the NWO. But tragedy befell professional wrestling last week when we learned that we lost Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. And I think most of the listeners of our podcast here on adfreeshows.com, they think, 
of Paul Orndorff with his WWF run, because that's probably what he's most known for main eventing WrestleMania one, his, his feud with Hulk Hogan that set all kinds of records, but unfortunately Bruce Pritchard started in April of 87 and by January of 88, Paul was gone and he wound up in WCW and he actually wound up spending way more time with you both in the ring and outside of the ring. So I thought who better to talk about the man behind the character, Mr. Wonderful than Eric Bischoff. And I guess we'll just sort of, uh, start from the beginning. When did you first meet Mr. Wonderful? Oh, wow. You know, it's, I, I, I don't remember. Um, I'm not sure that Paul was in WCW when I first arrived. He may have been, I don't think so, but I didn't really start to get to know Paul. Not, again, not sure when our paths crossed initially, but he came back in 92, Paul, Paul so, 92, 93 yeah. is, is when, and again, this was before I got into management of WCW. I was an announcer back then. Um, that's when I first remember coming into contact with Paul. I just don't remember how long he had been there before that period of time. Hey, as a heads up, CBD isn't about what you feel. It's about what you don't feel stress, anxiety, pain, and feels is a way to feel better feels is a premium CBD that will help you keep your head clear and feel your best. It's hassle-free and delivered directly to your door. Myself and a lot of my friends are using CBD on a regular basis because it naturally helps you reduce stress, anxiety, pain, even sleeplessness. And maybe best of all, there's no hangover or addiction. I've got, uh, I think what Al Bundy called a trick knee and I've had it for a long time. Let's just say at 40 years old, I know when it's going to rain before the forecasters do not with CBD from feels. You see feels has allowed me to just take a few drops under the tongue and feel the difference within minutes. Now, the thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is important and really everyone's dose is different and check this out. Feels is here. They got your hookup. They got a free CBD hotline to guide your personal experience. So you find the perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to make sure that you get the best use out of your CBD. Joining the Feels monthly membership makes self-care easy. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel anytime. Start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash 83 weeks and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S.com slash 83 weeks to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. That's feels.com forward slash 83 weeks. Well, he actually, he left, uh, January 4th, 1988, the world wrestling federation. That's his last match, but he shows up in the NWA slash WCW in 1990 and starts a feud with Arn Anderson, but it's not quite the same. Uh, but then he bounced around uh, to Herb Abrams, UWF and Jim Cornette, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. But finally, WCW under Bill Watts brought him back in 92. And uh, he comes back in a big way at center stage, facing off against Ron Simmons for the world title. So he's immediately in that main event picture. Uh, he won the match by a count out with a little help from Rick Rude. And it feels like uh, when it comes to old school, hard nosed badasses, Bill Watts would have had a soft spot for a guy like Paul, right? Well, if, if, if 
Bill Watts has a soft spot. <laughs> I should say a soft spot in his heart. Then I'm sure Paul Orndorff um, was a guy that would, would be able to, uh, to have access to that tiny little soft spot in that otherwise cold heart of Bill Watts. But yeah, I mean, Paul was so well-respected you know, by everybody, you know, fans, obviously, because he was such a great performer, his opponents, because he was such a great, I hate to use the term a worker, but he was such a great opponent. Yeah. Um, and he was just a, Jim Ross said it best in a tweet shortly after Paul died. Paul Orndorff was a man's man. Yes, he was. And, and by that, I mean, just a, a person that you respect. I mean, I, I don't, I've never met anybody that had anything other than respect for Paul. Some people were closer to Paul and, you know, knew Paul differently as a friend than others who may only have known him professionally, but across the board, you know, Paul was one of those guys that, you know, nobody would even kind of roll their eyes or <clears throat> half chuckle, you know, or say something under the breath when his name, name came up because he just he had so much respect. And, and I think it was just because of the way he carried himself. He was a profoundly honest person. Um, he wasn't always the most gentle with how he expressed his opinion. He was very, he had a very strong opinion about a lot of things, but he was never selfish. It was never about me. You know, how am I going to get over what's in it for me? You know, where do I go from here? It was always just about the match and the quality of the match. Nothing but respect for Paul. Well, ultimately Bill Watts would be replaced in uh, February of 93. And some guy named Eric would become uh, executive producer. Did you have a relationship when you get the big seat, so to speak? Did you, uh, did you already have a relationship with Paul from your time as a quote unquote C squad announcer? Uh, yeah. I mean, we weren't real close. Um, because at that time I, number one, I didn't have time to, to, to get real, you know, even as a backup to the backup to the backup, you know, backup announcer, you know, my schedule was pretty full. I, I didn't travel you know, on the road during the week with the guys, I didn't do house shows. I was strictly a TV guy. And I did the majority of my work up until the time I got into management was all in post-production. So I spent a lot of time inside of the post-production studios over at CNN, but I didn't spend a lot of time other than television tapings where you're busy as hell. Um, so I never really, I didn't get real close to Paul, but look, Paul liked to hunt. Paul liked to fish. We had a, you know, mutual friends, you know, in WCW, the signers for Rick Steiner in particular. So we were acquaintances more than anything at, when I became executive producer, but I didn't have a real close relationship with Paul at that point. Well, we see the, uh, the first big uh, show under your watch is super brawl, uh, 1993. And I know you and Paulie B are going to be doing a watch along for his match there. So be sure to check that out. But what a match it was. Paul Orndorff versus Cactus Jack. Talk about Styles Clash. I mean, one guy's a legit badass, and one guy will take, he's a crazy person who will take insane amounts of punishment. That's, uh, that's an interesting matchup. Yeah, you would definitely when it came to characters. But, you know, people forget 
you know, Mick Foley was an amateur wrestler in high school. So it's not like Mick was just a big, tough guy willing to, you know, take all kinds of insane risks um, in terms of what he presented in the ring. Clearly he was an amazing character and his mic skills, even when I was announcing in WCW before I got into management, I always loved working with, with Mick because you never knew, you know, what was going to come out of his mouth. If you enjoyed improv and you loved the thrill of a crazy ride when it came to being on the mic, Mick was the best. He was so much fun, but you know, people forget he was also an amateur wrestler. So it's not like Paul didn't, or excuse me, it's not like Mick didn't have great wrestling skills of course. as well. That just wasn't what he was building his character off of. But if you just looked at, you know, Mick Foley, Cactus Jack, Paul Orndorff on a piece of paper, you know, creative conversation, you would go, oh, I mean, square peg, round hole. I don't get that, but it worked. Here's a little uh, hard to believe fact. Orndorff wound up defeating Eric Watts in the finals of the television title tournament. And it winds up giving Paul his first singles title in a national promotion in his entire career. When you consider this is a guy who set all kinds of record and was major box office with Hulk Hogan and is in the main event for goodness sake of WrestleMania. It's crazy to think after all that time, this is his first major title. It's remarkable. And, uh, man, if, if you had to have somebody on TV representing your brand as a badass who could take on all comers, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who could fit that bill better than Paul fit that bill better than Paul. And also, you know, I, I think it's worth pointing out that and again, I'm not the wrestling historian, right? It's just not my interest. Um, probably should be given the nature of what we do here every week, but I'm not. Um, but there are other top, top money makers, performers with great legacies who haven't held major titles either. Scott Hall's probably one of them. Tag team champion and probably had some other t- titles in there. But Scott, Scott Hall was never a world heavyweight champion. Some guys need a belt. And when I say need, it's not that they wouldn't have been great performers without it, but there are those performers out there who, whether they have a championship or not, they're at the top of their game. And I think Paul was one of those players, unlike Scott Hall was. In your experience in working with Paul, is he one of those veterans who shows up, gets dressed, works his match and leaves, or is he a, a veteran who tries to hang around, help the younger guys and, and sort of give back if that makes sense? You know, I'm, I'm only hesitating because it's like, you know, two parts of Paul's career. When I worked with Paul briefly, unfortunately, um, I only worked with Paul as a performer for a couple of years. Right. And my sense back then was, you know, Paul wouldn't go out of his way necessarily to try to help people. But if you approached Paul, you know, showed him a little bit of respect and, and engaged Paul, he would overwhelm you trying to help you. But he wasn't one of those guys that spent a lot of time walking around, shaking hands with everybody and putting on the, you know, the pro wrestler show in the locker room. He didn't need that. He, he didn't feel he wasn't trying to impress anybody. He wasn't, he was so apolitical. And that's probably one of the reasons Paul and I got along so well later on as time went on 
just because he just, he didn't have any time for politics. He hated it. He really did. So I think Paul was more, if I recall back, Paul was more um, the guy who would show up. He, he would certainly engage when it came to finding out, you know, what was expected of him, what the goals were, where the story's going. He wanted to have a comprehensive view of what he was doing and where he was going only so that he could deliver or over deliver. But um, he wasn't necessarily a real outgoing guy unless you came to him, in which case he would overwhelm you with, you know, attempts to try to help and give advice. He loved sharing. But he would, he, like I said, he wouldn't, he wouldn't approach anybody on his own. But if you approached him, he was a wealth of knowledge and eager to help. By now, everyone has heard that real estate is hotter than ever. Homes are routinely selling for thousands of dollars above the listing price. But if you aren't looking to sell your home or buy another, you may have wondered, how does today's hot market affect me? Today, your house is very likely worth more than ever before. And that means you have more equity than ever before. And that represents a real opportunity to change your life. Now's the perfect time to consolidate all of your credit cards. You see, the interest you pay on a credit card is not only at a very high rate, it's also not tax deductible. Families just like yours have saved five, six, seven, even $800 per month. And you can too at savewithconrad.com. Oh, and if you've been dreaming of remodeling your kitchen, master bathroom, maybe putting in a pool or even a home theater, this is your chance to turn your house into your dream home with no money out of pocket. So why not let my family get your family the best mortgage you've ever had at savewithconrad.com. First family mortgage, NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months at savewithconrad.com. Back when he was a performer, do you remember any talents in particular who would cozy up to Paul and, and ask for that advice or, or see him counseling this guy or that guy? Any names stick out we might remember? No, I, you know, I know nobody sticks out in my mind. You know, and I would say there was probably dozens of guys. Paul also liked to, you know, go down to the power plant. And that's the thing I, I, you know, there's certain people that I remember that, you know, Ole Anderson, and I don't want to really compare Ole to Paul except for to say they were both really old school yep. mentality guys. You know, they, they both protected the business. They felt that the business needed to be protected. They took it upon themselves to protect the business. Um, but man, you put them in a, like in our case, you put either one of them in the power plant and they just blossomed. You could, you could tell that that was the thing that made them the happiest. It didn't make them the most money, by the way. And it wasn't the most prestigious position necessarily um, for guys like Ole and Paul. It was kind of like, okay, your time has come time to pass it, you know, pass it along, you know, pass the torch in any way that you can. And while Ole and Paul both loved doing it, I think as the performer side of them, they kind of resisted it. They didn't want to acknowledge that they were at that stage in their career where their, their experience and their ability to teach was as valuable as it was because they, they still believe they had more value in the ring, particularly in Paul's case, not so much always, but in Paul's case, but he may have been hesitant or somewhat resistant in terms of, you know, being delegated to go down to the power plant and help. But the minute he got there, you could tell he had more fun doing that than he had doing anything. He loved teaching and he, he, he just gets so immersed in it. He was, Paul was like a little kid when he got excited. 
I mean, as much of a bad, I mean, look, his face looks like it looked like he was chiseled out of granite. Yeah. He had the, he had the physical appearance of what I would suggest maybe the perfect archetype of a professional wrestler, especially at that time. I mean, his face would scare you to death. He looked so tough. He was a good looking dude. He wasn't a homely dude. He's a great looking guy, but he just had that chiseled intense. You could tell by looking at him, he could tear you to shreds. Right. But when you, when he was in there teaching and engaged, he was, he was giddy like a little kid. It was almost funny to watch. He, uh, He's going to be quite the flag bearer for you as TV champ. He's going to hold that strap for 169 days, which is an eternity these days, uh, until he finally drops it to Ricky, the dragon steamboat and at clash of the champions 24. And then he moves from being a singles wrestler into a tag team wrestler. At this point, Paul Roma is going to ditch the horseman and form pretty wonderful with Paul. Was Paul having issues with being a singles wrestler? Because I do know that. You know, and we can't really tell his story without talking about the fact that he suffered an injury while he's working with the WWF and the money is so great. I mean, there's weeks where he's having $20,000 weeks and in that era or this era, you don't give that up. You find a way to figure it out and he postponed surgery. And by the time the surgery could take place, the damage had been done. So he started to experience major atrophy in one of his arms. And, and it was noticeable even here in WCW when he's first wrestling that, Hey, something's off. Uh, so he's, he's, he's hurt himself. Was it time for him to move into a tag team position? Was it his idea or you guys idea at WCW? Conrad, I couldn't tell you that, you know, I wasn't involved in that decision or, or heavily involved in creative really at that time. <clears throat> so I, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of how that transpired or what the conversations were. <clears throat> All I can tell you is from where I, from my perspective and what I remember seeing Paul embraced that, you know, there was no, I didn't ever sense any hesitancy. Once Paul knew what he was going to be doing in the ring, he, he just never balked at anything. He may come up with suggestions from time to time, but he was not the guy to go unwillingly or even, you know, with a half chip on the shoulder into anything with anybody. So I, I really don't know what the discussions were and if putting him with Paul Roman was a way to camouflage, it probably was. Yeah. That would make sense. Right. Yeah. Um, but whether or not he resisted it or was disappointed in it in any way, I, I don't ever recall that him expressing any of that. And I, I couldn't see it on him. What'd you think of the, uh, the team pretty wonderful him and, and Paul Roma. Yeah, You know, it's funny when you said that, I got kind of a smile on my face, you know, I, I, cause I forgot about it. Yeah. I'm, you know, Paul Roma had his limitations, I think. Um, but overall he was a good character. Um, and I think putting those two together was a, was a smart move. I, I'm guessing it was probably dusty at the time but it kind of makes sense. Right. Um, I like the tag team, you know, did they get, you know, four-star matches from dirt sheet writers? Probably not, but was it entertaining as hell? Did it just, was it good casting? And they're believable. They're both believable, particularly yeah. Paul. Yeah. Orndorff. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think about that, but yeah, the two Pauls, 
They're originally paired with the masked assassin who we know in real life is Jody Hamilton, Nick Patrick, the referee's father, and the man who helped open the power plant. Um, the pairing doesn't last very long. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to think back in hindsight, you know, that Jody Hamilton, who was going to be a staple at the power plant. And so was Paul Orndorff. They're paired together very briefly on camera, but that feels like a, a an odd pairing. It's almost like it was done at random to me. It was almost like it was a lottery. Like, Hey, they need a manager. We'll put them with, Oh, the, the masked assassin. Yeah. I think there was also a little bit of, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a nod to Jody Hamilton. It was a little bit of, Hey, let's give Jody some credibility because Jody's running the power plant. There was an effort to make the power plant a revenue generating opportunity within WCW. So I don't think it was just, Hey, let's, you know, I got an idea. Let's throw Jody Hamilton. there. I think there was some thought put behind it, not necessarily saying it was the greatest idea in the world, but it wasn't quite as random probably as it looked. It is uh, a very successful pairing. They're going to feud early on with Marcus Alexander Bagwell and two Colt Scorpio before moving on to the tag team title picture. Uh, at the time, those straps were held by cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan. And boy, what a match they had at the bash at the beach. 94. Uh, they go 20 minutes and 11 seconds. Pretty wonderful. It's going to come out victorious. Meltzer would write, although Paul Orndorff is great at working the crowd, these guys are flat when it comes to being tag champs. It wasn't until the last minute that it was even clear cactus would work as he was still in rough shape from a back injury suffered in a match against Sabu. WCW officials were also exceedingly upset about cactus spitting on the belt and throwing it on the ground during an ECW interview. Brian Pillman was flown in to substitute for him, but instead just made a cameo appearance at the Hogan victory party with Brutus beefcake, Jim Duggan and Brian Blair. The tag match here was dull. The crowd was doing the wave and paying no attention to the match. It went on forever. Finish saw Jack do the double arm DDT and Orndorf, but Roma tripped him from the outside and Jack's legs were way out of the ring and the ref right there. Seeing Roma hold them still counted as Orndorf did the pin half a star. So as I like to say here, a lot to unpack, it's, uh, it's Paul Orndorff's first time being a tag champion up until this point, he's primarily had single success, but as we mentioned a minute ago, his first singles title was the WCW TV title. This winds up being cactus's last match with WCW and allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo, it's because he had gotten so much heat from his ECW interview and supposedly you were pretty fired up about that. Do you remember that moment in time? No, I don't remember it because it didn't happen. Okay. (laughs) That was not the case. There was nothing even remotely. You you couldn't even come up with um, uh, any faction or any, you know, portion of the truth that would be kind of misinterpreted to, to, to that report. Um, You, you stating that, you know, Cactus Jack spitting on the title, uh, I'm, I'm sure it probably happened. It did. Yes. Yeah. You said it did. So I'll believe you, but this is the first time I recall hearing it. That's how much of an impression it left on me. So again, more, more nonsense, more innuendo. I know we're here talking about Paul, but you know, my issue with McFoley, uh, was, I couldn't get him to stop doing ridiculous stuff. It was dangerous to him. No, seriously, we were worried for him, for his well-being. And I was pretty good friends with Nick. Um, 
prior to all of this. Mick was one of those guys that, you know, I, I did spend some time with him and his wife. Uh, and Lori and I would go, we had a mutual friend by the name of uh, Sharon Glass, very wealthy people up north of Atlanta. Her husband owned a chain of furniture stores throughout the Southeast and was very, very successful. And we would go to her place on the weekends with our families and hang out at the pool and barbecue. So I was close to Mick on a personal level um, in a lot of ways. But, you know, the things that Mick wanted to do to get himself over were dangerous to not only him, which I was personally concerned about because I did have affection, still do, for Mick Foley. So consider him a good friend, but he was also putting others at risk in, in our opinion. And because it's Turner broadcasting and, you know, you're setting yourself up for litigation when you're doing so many of the things that Mick wanted to do, you know, jumping off balconies and just, it was too much. And that's where, you know, Mick and I kind of parted ways is I just couldn't allow him to do creatively the kinds of things that he wanted to do to get his character over. That was the only issue. Anything else that anybody came up with is just making shit up. Uh, It is possible. Don't you think that perhaps the quote unquote heat on Foley from, uh, I guess what was framed as WCW management that could have been Kevin Sullivan, right? Like, Oh, come on. You can't do that. Don't spit on our belt and throw it down on that TV. No. And I'm sure, look, I, I'm not going to lie. You know, things like that. I I'm, I'm not a traditionalist. I never was If you go back and look at the things that I did. You know, when I ran WCW, I was criticized ad nauseum some of the things that I did, um, taking wrestling to the Disney MGM studios. I got a, I got shredded for that idea. Um, so I was never a traditionalist, that kind of thing. Just, it didn't bother me as much as it would have bothered people that had been in the business a lot longer than I had, or people that had been in the ring and, and grew up, you know, the Ric Flair's of the world, the Arn Anderson's of the world. Not that they were necessarily in management at that time, although Rick may have been, but for me personally, that kind of thing, just, it, it didn't register on my Richter scale the way it did with others. So it could have been, as you pointed out, could have been easily Kevin Sullivan. Trade pros, whether you specialize in service or new construction, Ferguson knows firsthand how much work goes into a long day on the job, which is why we're committed to offering the products and solutions to get every job done right. With over a 1,000 locations, an unmatched selection of specialty products, tools, and supplies, our pro pickup and Samer next day delivery, you can trust that doing business with Ferguson will be the easiest part of your hard day's work. Visit ferguson.com to find a counter location near you. Let's talk about um, Fall Brawl. It's the next big pay-per-view and pretty wonderful schedule to take on Stars and Stripes, which at the time is Marcus Alexander Bagwell and the Patriot Dale Wilkes. Uh, let's time out right there. Dale recently passed away. Uh, he and I had some fun on Twitter earlier this year that I think people took a little too seriously, but man, what a run he had with Bret Hart a few years later in 1997, but he was here with you, uh, as part of a tag team with Marcus Alexander Bagwell, any memories of working with Dale? Sure. I worked with Dale Wilkes in the AWA. Oh, wow. I forgot about that. Yep. So I, I knew Dale, uh, before 
WCW. Um, got along with him fine. I got along with him in, in AWA. Uh, he was always a very personable guy. Um, I, I don't recall anybody not getting along with Dell. He was a pro, showed up on time, did his job, didn't bitch, tried to contribute as best he could, went out there and got it done and went home, came back the following week, rinse and repeat, do the same thing. In my eyes, that's a, that's a pro. And I always like working with people like that. On a personal level, <clears throat> never, you know, never went out to dinner after the show or had drinks with him or anything like that. So I never really got to know Dell on a personal level, but on a professional level, always got along with him fine. Uh, the match at uh, fall brawl is a two and a quarter match from Meltzer. Uh, what'd you think of, uh, the package here? Pretty wonderful. I mean, they're your tag champs. Now, are you pleased with the way things are going? Yeah, generally we were, you know, go back and look at the, the roster at that time, look at what was working, what wasn't working at the time. I think, you know, people would have a hard time arguing that that tag team wasn't a pretty well, um, cast tag team that we talked about a few moments ago, you know, Paul Roma and Paul Orndorff, although they were different in many ways, they were similar in others. They, I think they complemented each other very well. Um, Roma was a little more flamboyant and Orndorff was a little more dangerous. I like that. You know, it's a contrast, right? I like how contrasts work, you know, Randy Orton and, uh, What's his character name now? The skateboard burnout guy. Oh, Matt, Matt Riddle. Matt Riddle. Got his name escaping. I love that team. You wouldn't tell based on my inability to just pull their name out of the back of my head, but I love that tag team because that's a, just an interesting contrast of yeah. characters. It's like a good buddy cop movie. You know, you generally have contrasting characters that complement each other. And I think that's the way Paul Roma and Paul, Paul Orndorff were, that's how I looked at it at least. Eventually we're going to see uh, stars and stripes pick up a win. They're going to win the tag straps from pretty wonderful on a live WCW Saturday night. Again, this is pre nitro and man, that's, that's your primetime TV, right? WCW Saturday night. Oh yeah. That's, that was the most important thing that we did every week was WCW Saturday night. All eyes were on that show. In this it's, hard to believe, it's harder, you know, and it's, again, that's why I love doing this podcast with you. It's like, I almost forget. Yeah. Like life before nitro was a completely different experience than life after nitro. And then life pre NWO was a completely different life than life post NWO. Yeah. And everyone, you know, it's like when you bring these things up, it's like, wow, you know, because I forget the timelines and it all runs together for me. It's kind of hard to distinguish them until we, you know, get a little granular and dig into them. But yeah, WCW Saturday night was the deal. And Roma and Orndorff, to the credit, probably got as much reaction, almost as much as anybody on the card. Halloween Havoc 94 from Detroit. He's pretty wonderful. Again, regain the titles. It's a two and a quarter star match from Meltzer. Uh, you've talked about in the past, how moving the titles around too quickly can hurt. Did it matter here? Or is it more important to give people something that feels important and something that matters on a live broadcast like WCW Saturday night? Look, you know, you know and there was always this, it probably still is to some degree. Um, but there was always this almost a constant 
kind of debate over where and when titles should change hands. And, you know, as I step back, you know, and I'm trying to remember, you know, 25, 30 years ago, but when the house show business was down, then it was like, oh, wait a minute. We got to change titles in the house shows. People, we've conditioned the audience to believe that the only time they're going to see anything big is either on TV or more, more than that on a pay-per-view, right? So we've got to break that up. We've got to, we've got to do things differently. Keep the, keep the audience a little off balance so they never know for sure when they're going to see a title change, <clears throat> which if you go back, I think it happened probably as much during the Watts era, even with, even when I was working under Dusty, um, there was a, you know, a concerted effort to change the titles, you know, in house shows. And we'd always have cameras there. Of course, it would be grainy and ugly. And sometimes you couldn't even hardly see anything or the audio was horrible, but at least you, you know, you could replay it the following Saturday night to kind of give the audience a sense that, yeah, you, yeah, you want to watch every week on TV, but you want to go to the house show too what's in, when it's in your neighborhood. <clears throat> I I was, oh, I know I'm setting myself up to get fried here, but that's okay. Um, the fucks with which I have left to give are. Very few and far between, yeah. <laughs> um, I was never concerned. To me, changing titles I was more concerned about it feeling spontaneous and real than exactly how and when it happened. That makes sense. I, I, I always believe and still do believe that a title change should and could come out of anywhere at any time. And I think when you settle into this groove where, and, and it's probably not the same anymore, obviously, but back then in the context of the period of time we're talking about, to only have title changes on pay-per-views is in its own way, convincing your audience that your television shows really don't matter. Right. I mean, if you're of the mindset that titles matter and championships matter and the world heavyweight title in particular matters, then any match with a world heavyweight champion should be a competitive match where there's a chance at least that that title could change hands. And the only way you can, you can, achieve that sense within your audience is to have it happen in a very unpredictable way. And sometimes unpredictable meant, you know, on a Sunday at a pay-per-view, a guy would lose the title and three days later, he'd win it back. I know that sounds fucking ridiculous to all the people who never actually produced a wrestling show or were responsible for actually maintaining, you know, ratings over, one year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years. I know those people will never understand that. There's no way they could just like, I could never understand how to perform brain surgery. Cause I've never done that, but not really putting the two on the same, you know, level, but you know what I mean? I'm trying to make a point. You've never done brain surgery for real. Not on a human. Okay. I'm just going to leave it right there. Yeah. God. Tell the most grotesque joke, right? Now. I'm not going to do it. Um, no, and I, I just never subscribed to the theory that, you know, that there is a set pattern in which, or how titles should, should change clearly. Cause I did it on TV. Got a lot of criticism for that. A lot of criticism for it still do to this day. 
Fuck it. I was right. Well, they flip again at the next clash of the champions. They're going to lose the straps back to Bagwell and Patriot, but this time Orndorff's working the match with a blown out knee, which of course makes sense for them to drop it back. Meltzer still gave it two and a quarter stars, which seems to be a theme with Orndorff matches here. Uh, but Paul's going to be out for a bit with a knee injury. Uh, were you ever concerned that, you know, it might be time for you to suggest that maybe he take another role within the company. He's a well-liked guy. You're working great with him, but you know, he's got the whole nerve injury and now he's, uh, he's got a knee injury on top of that. Yeah, I do remember thinking that and having those conversations with Paul uh, and it was more, I wasn't trying to push Paul out of entering action. I was concerned for him. Right. It was evident to me that he wasn't, you know, the character um, that he had was previous. He was the same character, but he wasn't capable of doing the same things. He, he was so limited because of the injuries. He wasn't getting any younger. Um, certainly the nerve deterioration and the atrophy that resulted from it, that wasn't going to go away. Um, so I started having conversations with Paul more to let him know that he had no reason to be concerned that if he couldn't wrestle, he still had a job. And I wanted the decision to be his. There's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than for me, at least telling a performer, a wrestler. Yeah. In Paul's case, a real legitimate athlete, because that does make a difference too. Um, that their time is up. It sucks. So I wanted it to be Paul's idea more than my idea. And my way of helping that along was to make sure that Paul knew that he didn't have to go out there and wrestle anymore. I didn't want to tell him he couldn't, right? but I wanted to make sure he knew that he had an alternative. Right. So that at least he could come to me and say, I wanted him to come to me and say, Hey, you know, I'm really thinking about, you know, getting into producing and training down the power. I wanted it to be his idea because if I would have just said, Paul, you're done. Can't have you in the ring anymore. Not even, I wouldn't have never said this to Paul. I wouldn't have said this to anybody, but essentially the, the message would have been too many injuries, you're getting older. It's time to move on. Here's a job for you. If I would have said that to Paul, he would have been grateful to my face. And he, he might've actually been grateful until he got home and had to wrestle, no pun intended with the reality of it. Cause it's a fucked up thing when you, when you've been an athlete all your life and I'm not speaking from experience here, but I'm speaking from having seen it happen to a lot of people that I was close to. And a lot of others I want, I wasn't close to when that time comes. And I'm sure it's probably true for people that play in the NFL or major league baseball or, in whatever sport that relies on youth and, and, and reaction time, strength and endurance and all that. Um, but I think even more so in professional wrestling, because damn it, you're out there wrestling in your underwear. Yeah. Ever <laughs> cried out loud. You can't hide shit. <laughs> Especially back then. That was before people would show up, you know, full wearing, you know, full clothes as ring gear, but I wanted it to be Paul's idea. For far too long, Wall Street has neglected the average investor, giving out the same old generic advice like buy index funds. 
Meanwhile, for the ultra wealthy, they get access to premium investment strategies and white glove service. Well, that didn't sit well with Titan. So they built a premier investment firm, but for everyone, thanks to Titan. Now, everyday investors can have their capital invested by a world-class investment firm all through the Titan mobile app. Titan's goal is to give you access to the best investment experience in the world, but without the high minimums, lockups, or performance fees. Their in-house investment teams invest your capital using their award-winning strategies and delivers daily research updates via the Titan app. It's like having an elite investment manager in your pocket. Titan manages hundreds of millions of dollars for more than 25,000 clients and counting. And they were named the 2020 top investment app of the year by us news to get started. Simply download the Titan app. And by the way, I just did that. I just signed up for the Titan app. I'm excited. I believe in this and I think you're going to love it. Start investing with Titan today and get three months with zero fees. Visit titanvest.com slash 83 weeks. That's three months with zero fees at titanvest.com slash 83 weeks. I want to mention, uh, even though he's got some, some physical injuries, when he comes back, boy, he's in a featured spot. He's working tag matches, but here's an interesting one. Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage, the former mega powers from 1988 and 89 are going to defeat pretty wonderful in the main event of a WCW worldwide show in early February of 95. Which really, when you think about it, how many matches could Hulk Hogan have possibly had on worldwide? And here he is teaming with Randy Savage and who does Hulk choose to wrestle? And I frame it that way because he probably had a lot of influence as to who he's working. Paul Orndorff. Did you have any conversations this last week with uh, your old pal, Mr. Balea about Mr. Wonderful? We haven't yet. We've shared texts. Uh, we're scheduled to speak tomorrow. He's been underwater with some um, legal business, um, 13 years. He's been in a divorce battle for 13 years. I feel for him. I really do, but he's been underwater with that. And I've had some other issues that I've been dealing with the last four or five days. So we haven't really spoken, but we're supposed to talk to him. He called me this morning and I was out with my dog and I didn't have my phone, but I'm sure we'll catch up because I know it. He sent me a text as soon as it happens. Actually, he was in a deposition. And when he sent me the text and, uh, I know, it, I know he really, really loved and respected Paul Orndor, both Florida and, guys, and, huh? both Florida guys, the whole deal. Yeah. Both Florida guys, both came on up under Matsuda here in Matsuda. Yep. You know, I mean, literally in the same neighborhood, you know, yeah. basically the same age. So yeah, I, you know, and I know there's, you know, and I think you and I even spoke and, and briefly when it first happened and, you were surprised that, you know, Hulk and, and, and Paul, you know, were friends and, and Hulk thought the world, cause there's, there's always the, you know, the narrative outside of the business that these two didn't get along and I hated each other. And this guy wouldn't do a job for that guy and all that just bullshit. I hate to say the word Mark boy, but, you know, super fan, you know, fantasy kind of narrative that's out there, but it wasn't true. Hulk loved Paul. How about this? A super brawl 95 match happens that we got to discuss. It's a classic matchup between Alex, Wright And Paul Roma with Paul Orndorff at ringside 
And supposedly Paul Roma is super unhappy about being asked to put over the young Alex, Wright, And did a piss poor job doing so. Do you remember this match or any sort of, uh, memory of, of Roma sort of putting up a fuss about losing to Alex, Wright? You know, I don't want to be too critical of Paul Romo. Um, I, I will say general, you know, blanket statement. Paul was much more of a prima donna in real life, not just as a character than Orndorff certainly was. <clears throat> and most guys were. Uh, do I recall that specific issue? No, because I wouldn't have been directly involved. In it. Right. I've heard about it. Yeah. But can I imagine it happening? Of course I could, because Roma was. He was much more temperamental. He was a temperamental artist. Slambury 95 comes around and man, check this out. I, I gotta admit, I kind of forgot about this and I'm glad we get the opportunity to do shows like this and, and highlight these moments. Paul Roma's going to wrestle for the world title for the first time in nearly a decade, but it's the IWGP title. That's right. The new Japan big belt is going to be challenging the great Muda. Meltzer would say great mood to retain the IWGP heavyweight pinning Paul Orndorff in 1411 with the moonsault really dull. I knew it would be bad because Orndorff's slow paced old style is all wrong for Muto and Muto is inconsistent to begin with, but it was a surprise. Just how bad Muto did his signature spots, the power elbow drop, the handspring elbow, the face buster and the moonsault, but that was the entire match half a star. Let's forget the criticism of the match. And let's just talk about, again, he's coming back from a, a knee injury. He's got nerve damage, his arms atrophying. And in fact, uh, that whole side of his body is starting to, but as soon as he comes back, Hogan says, Hey, I want to work with him. And then he finds himself on pay-per-view challenging great Muda for the NW or the new Japan world title. He has the confidence of upper management and the top of the card talent. It says a lot about Paul Orndorff, where even if he is a little diminished from maybe where he once was, it doesn't mean the guys have lost confidence in him. It was more about respect and confidence at that point. It's let's let the guy go out. If his career is coming to an end, end with a guy that like Paul who had contributed so much, was so consistent, was such a pro, was so easy to work with, and had achieved so much and had given so much, not only to the fans, but to the company that he worked for or companies that he worked for. Yeah. If if that's a match that makes sense on paper, does anybody going into that match think that, oh, my gosh, maybe Dave Meltzer is going to give this three and a half or four stars? No. Because truthfully, nobody gave a fuck but uh, about Dave Meltzer. But was it important to give Paul an opportunity, an important opportunity and shine? Yeah, it was. And could, could, could we be criticized for that? I'm sure we were, and I'm sure we will be after this podcast lands tomorrow morning. Um, bucks with which I have left to give, not so many. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, 
figuring out your risk tolerance. Or finally, understanding all of those terms your friends keep throwing around, like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Learn about these investment products and more at investor.gov. Your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, investor.gov. Orndorf wins a Slim Jim tournament on TV. Do you remember this? The Slim Jim tournament? <laughs> oh. It's tremendous to me that Paul won it. It feels like to me, a Macho Man would have had the line on that one. But uh, there's a note in the July 3rd Observer that I don't just want to skip over. Quote, Paul Orndorff was at the June 26th booking committee meeting. Was there ever consideration to putting Paul on the committee? Or did you occasionally just have guys pop by just to see how the sausage was made and maybe get their two cents? No, it wasn't so much to see how the sausage was made. They knew how the sausage was made, um, but it was to get a different opinion. Every once, you know, you, you get the same six or eight people in a room all week long, every week. It becomes somewhat homogenized over, over a period of time. And every once in a while, you just need somebody to come in for no other reason than to spur another type of discussion, to give a point of view that you hadn't been hearing for the last four, five, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 18, 20, 52 weeks. Bring somebody in that you have respect for, that's been there, that's done it, that has a strong opinion. And just put it on the table and see if that spurs something else. Whether, you know, Paul came in with a great idea and a great solution or not wasn't important. What was important is that you kind of shake up the creative committee, if you will, and get them thinking differently. Because you fall into a rut. And I've seen it everywhere, everywhere I've ever been. You get into a rhythm. You get into a rut. And all of a sudden, the ideas start feeling and sounding very similar because it's easy to get comfortable with that. When you're, on a, when you're in a group of people, and I guess it's human nature to agree, you know, people want to, they go along to get along, Yeah, maybe is a good way to say it. And then the ideas begin, begin to just all kind of sound so much the same. And every once in a while, you bring somebody in and just throws a fucking grenade in the middle of the table and everybody scatters. And all of a sudden, they've got adrenaline and they're fighting for survival and they're forced to think and communicate and have an opinion. So I love doing that kind of stuff. And, and Paul was a great guy to do it with because everybody in the room had respect for him. It wasn't like anybody in that room went, <laughs> why are you bringing him in? Who's he ever beat? What's he ever done? No, <laughs> when he walked in a room, he commanded respect and not because he was intimidating, not because he was a badass. It's like juvenile high school shit. He got, he had respect because of people knew that he knew what he was talking about. Granted, Paul's perspective was dated. It was. It's also one of the reasons why I thought it might be helpful because every once in a while, you got to kind of go back to what has worked. You know, it's great to push new ideas. It's great to push. Trust me, I I built my career on that, pushing the envelope, breaking the paradigm, whatever you want to call it, whatever whatever new business term there is for it, or self help business term there is for it. I that's what I did, and it sometimes it worked 
amazingly well. And sometimes you shit the bed, you know, but that's what happens when you try to find new ways of doing things. But every once in a while, you, it doesn't hurt to come back to the basics and remind everybody, okay, this, this shit works because of this basic formula that has always worked, that will always work as long as there's televised professional wrestling. And sometimes it's good to come back to it. Supposedly, uh, Paul finds himself working as an agent in early July at some of the center stage tapings. What was it about Paul that made him a good fit for that role in your opinion? Same thing that made him a good instructor, coach, whatever you want to call it, down at the power plant. Once Paul embraced the role as an agent and he didn't look at it as a demotion, which some people would, that was, again, going back to what we talked, a few, talked about a few minutes ago, one of the reasons I wanted it to be Paul's idea or at least him feel like he had something to do with it is because you approach the job differently when it's something you want to do as opposed to it being something that you have to do Yeah, because you have no choice. And Paul was great as an agent or a producer, whatever you want to call it. I thought they were called agents. Um, Paul was great as a, as an agent and a producer because of the same reason he was a good coach. He forgot about himself and was trying to get the, the person he was working with over and trying to help the person. And whether he knew it, and I think he probably did eventually, but I think he had his, he got as much of a rush out of coaching someone and seeing them succeed or even just make progress. You know, he got as much of a rush out of that as he did out of doing it for himself. That's magic when that happens. There, and there are, there are, you know, there's some really good agents out there today that are like that. They love what they do. Jake Roberts, I think, is one of them. Now, I've never watched Jake work closely with talent. I've always been kind of on the periphery of that, kind of watching out of the corner of my eye, so to speak, just out of respect for, for Jake, because I, I would really love to be a fly on the wall sometime and just listen to Jake coach, because I – Still love to learn. I'd sure. love to hear how his brain works. But <clears throat> there are certain people that love doing it. Dusty Rhodes loved it. Dusty Rhodes loved coaching talent. Loved it. And watching somebody that loves doing it when you're coaching and they're teaching and they're sharing knowledge, it's a fun thing to experience. So Paul embraced it right away. Well, now it's time to talk about one of the more, uh, I guess we'll say classic moments of Paul's WCW <laughs> career. He goes one-on-one with the renegade at bash at the beach, 1995. Of course, you may remember this is the show that happened on the beach in California. Meltzer would write renegade retain the TV title, pinning Paul Orndorff in six minutes and 12 seconds. Orndorff worked a solid match, but like Arn Anderson before him, that isn't enough. Highlight was Renegade hitting two of the worst drop kicks on record. Renegade won with a sloppy back suplex, with the storyline being Orndorff got his shoulder up, but the referee was out of position to see it. Orndorff attacked him and then pile drove him after the match, but Renegade popped back up and hit a cross body. Tons of booze when Renegade popped up. Dud. Boy, it, 
it feels like you're trying to make it his idea. You know, why don't you just work backstage? I mean, I know that's not real, but it is hilarious. No, it's not real at all. No, I'm just kidding. But man, the renegade, I know Paul likes teaching people, but probably not live on pay-per-view. This was not good. No, it wasn't. And I think it was, it, it was a bad idea. It was bad booking. I understand the logic of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause you, you put him in there with Arn before. So you, you got to think, okay, You're trying to get the kid over. Yeah. And who better than Paul Orndorff and Arn Anderson, but golly chicken salad's not always possible. Nope. Nope. That's like putting me on stage with Eric Clapton for a guitar duet. It's going to be tough. Bad idea. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix, I'm going to suck no matter what. And that's what that was all about. It was just trying to get renegade over. We got a rematch. Uh, you weren't done punishing us at home yet, Eric. Uh, <laughs> it's the next clash of the champions. Meltzer would say Orndorff took control of the entire match, not leaving renegade, even one chance to blow a spot renegade. Then won with a crossbody from the apron to the ring dud. Uh, yeah, listen, there's no way to make a renegade match. Good. He just, we should probably do an episode on him sometime. It's a tragic tale and, uh, he just wasn't ready for prime time. No matter who he's in there with. No. And <clears throat> unfortunately, you know, there was a lot of people who, because of his look, whatever other factors were playing themselves out in people's minds, thought that renegade could be an important player. And, you know, it, how many, how, how many Fu man shoes were rubbed in that debate? You know, I, Hulk didn't really get involved. He was involved, but he was been more involved through Jimmy's going to hate me for this, but it was, that was more Jimmy Hart. Than okay. Was Hulk Hogan. Yeah. I'd heard that, that it was actually Jimmy who I think discovered him on an indie show. Right. Yeah. It was Jimmy. He was Jimmy Hart's project. I see. And Hulk kind of leveraged his friendship stroke, yeah. uh, in order to help support Jimmy, to give Jimmy a shot at trying to get this kid over. That's really what it was. Got it. Well, the observer on, uh, eight fourteen ninety five would read Paul Orndorff now has awful entrance music. Part of the gimmick is the music is supposed to be awful, but now he brings out a mirror and makes the referee hold the mirror as he stares at himself. This is not necessarily a new thing. I mean, you go back to the very beginning of wrestling and gorgeous George used to bring a mirror out and you fast forward and certainly Vince McMahon tried this a few different ways. Shawn Michaels was primping in a mirror and I think before him, Lex Luger as the narcissist was doing it. So it's not exactly a new thing, but it is new for Mr. Wonderful. Uh, did you think the music was awful and was it intentionally awful? Because I could get how you would just want everybody to just have that immediate almost go away heat for a heel, right? Yeah. I don't remember the music. I have to go back and listen to it. I don't remember the music. What I love th- the idea of Paul. You know, I mean, Mr. Wonderful, come on. It was a natural, it was a great character for him. A great version of that character um, to him all of a sudden become a, <clears throat> a gorgeous George or a narcissist type of character. Um, I love the idea of it, but I, I just don't remember the music. I think this is it. Let's take a listen. 
this music? Eric. For that character, that is great music. It's hateable. I like it for that character. I feel like tonight when you get ready to go tuck Mrs. B in, you're going to play this. What I do? What? Tuck her into bed. Oh my God. I thought, what did he just say here on a podcast? No, I would never gotten that personal. No, no, no. Yeah. You know, she's getting sleepy headed and you're like, oh, Mrs. B, let me go tuck you in. You just turn that on and just strut (laughs) in. Just see what happens. Just see what happens. Yeah. I know Uh, what usually happens. (laughs) (laughs) She says, go to bed, Eric. I'll see you in the morning. Yeah. Go to bed. Grab your dog. Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Breaking news. Even though I don't trust that Dave Silva after what he did to my bathroom floor, that's a story for another podcast. He at least trusts my recommendations when it comes to the perfect gift. It's paintyourlife.com. Dave Silva gifted me the best birthday present I got this past year. It was a, uh, a painting of a boathouse for a house that I just bought. And when we bought the house, they, they had a painting of the boathouse in there. That was like, I don't know, 25 years old. The boathouse actually predated the house. And I thought, man, how cool is that? And they said they were going to leave it. And then they didn't. I mentioned that to Dave Silva and he knew just what to do. He rushed over to paintyourlife.com and he had them make not just any old painting, but a much better and a much bigger painting. And he tells me he did it very affordably. Now, if I didn't know that he went to paintyourlife.com, I would question that. This felt like a major purchase, but I know he got the hookup because he listens to this show. Now, I know it seems expensive, but hear me out. You can get a truly meaningful gift at a fraction of the price you imagine at paintyourlife.com. What we're talking about is a professional hand-painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price. You'll choose from a team of world-class artists and you'll work with them until every detail is perfect. They've got a very easy user-friendly platform where you get a custom-made hand-painted portrait and it all gets started in about five minutes. In fact, it's so quick and easy, you get your hand-painted portrait in just about three weeks. You can send a picture of anything, yourself, your kids, your family, a special place, a cherished pet, or you can even combine photos into one painting. This is not just for birthday presents, it's for wedding gifts or anniversaries or, dude, any occasion where you need something that's personal, that'll be cherished forever. You want a meaningful gift? You want paintyourlife.com. And at paintyourlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word ERIC to 64000. That's ERIC to 64000. Text ERIC to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Terms apply available at paintyourlife.com forward slash terms. One more time, text Eric to 64,000. Uh, here's another, uh, tidbit from that same observer quote. The first main event on the nitro show will be Hogan versus Orndorff. Now, of course we know that's not exactly the way everything wound up shaking out. Imagine that, but still that would have been kind of cool. And, and I could see why that would have been a thing. Hogan is a guy who, and and you've laid it out before. And I think Kevin Sullivan has too. when he first came in the WCW, he wasn't exactly very trusting and he wanted to work with guys he could trust. So Ric Flair more often than not pulled that card, 
but Orndorf is another guy that he drew big money with had known basically his whole life. So it does feel like a safe bet to think, okay, I could see that. And also too, it's a proven commodity. I mean, he is a classic heel. He's taking on a, the ultimate classic baby face, but they had done big business. What? 10 years prior. So why not? I could see that. Of course we know it didn't wind up happening. Do you remember Hogan ever suggesting, or maybe someone else? Hey man, Hogan Orndorff, that could be the first main event. No, not in that context. Not in, it could be the first main event. Now there was, you know, Paul's name would come up often just in general discussions about, you know, where to go and what to do and possible matchups, but not then. Well, of course, before we get to that first nitro, uh, well, something big is going to happen. And we've talked about this on another episode, but we can't really tell his story without talking about it here. Uh, an altercation happens. And I guess we should probably just recap it from the observer and let you, uh, pick up the pieces, a backstage brawl between Leon white and Paul Orndorff apparently led to renewed negotiations that resulted in Lex Luger shockingly walking onto the set of the debut program of WCW Monday Nitro on September 4th to set up a WCW title match with Hulk Hogan on the 11th. The white Orndorff situation took place Wednesday afternoon, several hours before the TV taping at center stage. White, who, according to one report, had arrived late to the building, was told by Orndorff that they wanted him out for interviews with Gene Okerlund. It should be noted that for whatever reason, there was prior heat between them that but before this took place, uh, white was taking his time and Orndorff started yelling at him, not in as much of a way as one would figure with a high school football coach yelling at a player. WCW officials go ahead. Uh, you, you remember this a little bit? How the, no, the story. I, remember it. I wasn't there when it all went down. It's amazing that Dave has so much um, insight into the, the, the nuanced details of this conf- confrontation when, you know, I was 15 minutes away when it went down and <clears throat> had conversations with everybody, but well, let's listen to what Dave had to say because he was in wherever the fuck he was in California and certainly has much more detail than anybody else had. WCW officials were saying that if they didn't hurry up and finish the interviews, they'd have to pay dinner for the crew because they're already behind schedule. So white growled at Orndorff at one point, according to eyewitnesses, white and Orndorff traded words, which turned into a cussing contest and grew heated for several minutes. At what point Orndorff reportedly called Vader, a fat prima Donna. By this point, they were swearing at each other chest to chest. When reportedly Orndorff told white to make his move. After more of a chest to chest swearing contest, white threw a palm blow to the chest, which knocked Orndorff down. Orndorff got up and went to tackle white. And while this was going on, the other wrestlers largely did what was described as a pathetic pull apart with everyone around Orndorff threw a perfect left, which is his weak arm, the injured arm to white's head and knocked him silly with white hitting the deck. At this point, Orndorff threw kick after kick at the stunned Vader's face while Vader tried to cover up in the fetal position on the ground before it was broken up. Orndorff was wearing sandals. So it minimized the damage from the kicks as compared to the cowboy boots that most wrestlers wear. White's face was a mess at this point with both eyes puffed up from the kicks and a bloody lip. If Orndorff had been wearing cowboy boots, the potential damage could have been very serious. White was stunned on the ground for several minutes before he finally got his bearings together. When he finally recovered, he went to the office that Orndorff was in and the two started arguing again, and it went to blows. 
This time they traded punches with Orndorff coming out of it with a black eye and a bloody lip and Vader who went into the room with a messed up face came out even messier before the two were separated again. At this point, white was sent home and pulled from the taping Orndorff with a black eye worked his scheduled squash match at the taping with Barry Houston. Orndorff became something of a John Wayne type hero in the front office since white outweighed him by around 200 pounds and is seven years younger. It's 39 years old for Vader, 46 for Orndorff. Uh, and Orndorff had a reputation for being a tough guy going back to the early eighties. And he came out of the confrontation in far better shape. There used to be a joke in wrestling because Orndorff was an avid hunter that Orndorff didn't really need a gu- didn't really need a weapon to go hunting. So Orndorff's reputation as a badass in wrestling grew by leaps and bounds. So instead of being a guy that you heard was a tough guy when he was a younger man, now here he is dropping one of the meanest, biggest, baddest bullies on the block. And uh, I guess you took issue with Dave's reporting, but what did you hear? I think as the rumor goes, Tony Schiavone is the one who called you. No, it was Jenny angle. But my issue with it all is what you just described was this blow by blow minute by minute description of an event that took place that Dave was nowhere fucking near. How could you try to, I mean, never mind. I'm not going to go off. I, I just, please don't. Shits I have left to give. It's just so stupid and so obvious. NMLS number 65084 equal housing lender. Woo! With the real estate market being so hot, you have more equity than ever before. Use that equity to consolidate all of your credit card debt and get the cash you need to turn your house into your dream home at savewithconrad.com. Here's Here's what happened. Okay. Here's what I remember happening. Oh, and by the way, I was there. Um, Wait, just a minute ago, you said you were 15 minutes away. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't there. I didn't see the blow. I didn't see the fight. I didn't see that. I arrived 15 minutes later. I see. So I guess in terms of proximity, I was a little closer than Dave. Sure. <clears throat> Janie Engel is the one that called me. Now, Janie, Janie and Paul were very close. They were very, very good friends. And Janie Engel was my executive assistant. And when I say executive assistant, that's not even being respectful enough to Janie. Janie, she worked, she was Dusty Rhodes' executive assistant. She, I think she did the same thing under Bill Watts. And she certainly was for me. And Janie knew, Janie knew the business probably better than most of the talent that was in it. But Janie was also very, very close to my family. My kids to this day still refer to her as Auntie Janie. Janie would come over on the weekends uh, when Lori and I had occasions to go out of town. Janie Engel would stay with my kids. She was very close to our family. And I trusted her. I, I knew that Janie would never, ever lie to me or withhold information that I needed to know. There's not very many people that I have and, and or had and still have respect for in terms of their honesty and integrity. And Janie called me as I was on my, I was in a meeting at Techwood, which was the original Turner Broadcasting offices, which were only about 10 or 15 minutes away from center stage. I was on my way and Janie called me. 
And I could tell the minute she said, you know, hello, that she was, she was scared. She was upset. She said, I, I just want to tell you what happened before you get here. So you're prepared and you know what you have to deal with. I said, okay, tell me what happened. And she laid out the story. Now, Janie was there. You know, she, Janie was never, I mean, center stage, <laughs> center stage was the kind of place that if you were in the building, you were probably really close to whatever was going on, right. a small building. And she told me what happened. And the story that she told me was that there were one, it was one, one producer in particular, I think it was Woody Kears was the name of the guy. Um, they were trying to get Leon to do interviews. We have a schedule, you know, we're not going to be there all night. We have things to do. And I don't know if it was, I doubt it was a dinner issue because we didn't start taping till six o'clock. So I think that's just another weird little Dave Meltzer thing he threw into the story. <clears throat> it was just a matter of getting everything done in the time we had allowed to, to do it. And Leon, and you, you know me, Conrad, I hate, the only reason I'm hesitating and I'm mishmashing my way through this is because I hate to talk about people who aren't here to defend themselves. Right. And I don't want it to be disrespectful to Leon White. Leon White was a tremendous talent. He was an amazing asset to WCW. He has a place in wrestling history that will never be able to be denied as one of the best big men in the industry, but he could also be a temperamental bully. It's one of the reasons that Harley race was such an important part of Leon's career. Cause Harley race was the only person that Leon had a lot of respect for that could keep Leon more or less under control because Leon was a bully. And he could also be the sweetest, kindest, gentlest, big redheaded teddy bear you ever met. But if he was in a shitty mood, it was the exact opposite. And he would intimidate people. Now, you know, you want to intimidate somebody that you're working with, that usually, that, that kind of thing usually worked itself out. You know, didn't have to worry about that too much. But Leon would, from time to time, he didn't make a habit of it. You would intimidate production staff, people that are just trying to help him get his job done, people that are trying to accommodate him to get his interview done in a reasonably timely fashion and with the highest degree of quality they can, they can help produce it in. And those are the people that Leon, from time to time, not all the time, would abuse and intimidate. And that's what started it according to what I was told by people who I trusted and I knew wouldn't color the story or nuance it or fabricate it. They would tell Janie would tell me if she, if there was something that was going to hurt Paul and put Paul in a bad light, she was going to tell me. And I, and I knew that. And I know it now as I sit here and talk to you about it. So by the time I got to the building, Janie had already given me a kind of precursor. I knew what I was walking into, so to speak, I pulled Janie aside. I said, okay, tell me exactly what happened. Who was involved? What happened? And I went to Paul separately. Paul, tell me what happened. Minute by minute. How'd it go down? And Paul and Janie told me the same story. And by the way, they didn't have time to even get their story straight. I right. was there within 10 minutes. And, and there was a lot going on. 
we were still producing a TV show by the time I got there. So I listened to them both. And I trusted Paul, by the way, I trusted Paul, not the same way as I trusted Janie, because I wasn't as close to Paul as I was to Janie, but I trusted him. I believed him. And as far as I was concerned, that was it. You know, Paul was, Janie was afraid I was going to fire Paul. Paul was afraid I was going to fire Paul. I gave him a raise. Not because I was happy about it. Not because, you know, I, I had any animosity or ill will towards Leon. It was like, you know what? You did what you thought you had. Nobody that listens to this today is even going to remotely understand the culture and the context of the time. They're just not because they're whatever. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> Generally, people are, ah, I'm not going to say No, you have to. You can't tease us. No, twice. I can't. Look, everybody's, everybody's so politically correct now. Everybody's a fucking virtue signaling punk because they've never been in these situations. They didn't live back then. They didn't work in the environment back then. They don't understand the culture back then. They didn't understand the business back then. They didn't understand how the business policed itself back then in many respects. Not perfectly. Not defending it, but I certainly fucking understand it because I was at least there, not there for the fight, but I was there during that period of time and kind of came up in that culture. And when it came to talent versus talent, you want to bully the guy you're with, you want to fuck with the person you're with, that shit would take care of itself. Wasn't too worried about that. But when you start bullying, you know, a guy that weighs 145 pounds, it's you know, makes a fraction of what you pay in taxes and is busting their ass to make you look good. And then you want to physically intimidate them and bully them. I thought it was worth a raise. It's probably why I don't have a job in corporate America today, but that's all right too. I don't think that's why. No, there's a lot of other reasons. (laughs) (laughs) That's just, that's a little one. All right. So timeout. I got to tell you, I'm a little jealous that uh, Eric is firing up his rec tech and he's going to be grilling up some Wagyu and it makes me jealous. Not because I want Wagyu. It's not exactly my bag, baby. I'm more of a leaner meat kind of guy. I know probably insert a fat joke there. Cause I'm, uh, I guess you'd say well marbled. I need a rec tech because I've heard Eric bragging about rec tech. You see, they offer wood pellet grills fueled by all natural hardwood pellets. And they've got other outdoor lifestyle products like coolers, apparel, grill accessories, and more. But more importantly, they have grills for every lifestyle and every budget with a focus on flavor, convenience, and versatility. All their grills are made with high quality stainless steel and they're built to last a lifetime. But how about this? And you've heard Eric bragging about it. And this is why I'm really jealous. They've got the gold standard PID Wi-Fi controllers. This is the same form of temperature control used in commercial baking, brewing, and pharmaceuticals, but he can control his freaking grill from virtually anywhere in the world by the Rectech app. You can turn your Rectech up, down, off, on. You can do it all remotely. They use a ceramic igniter versus that fragile steel igniter gimmick that all the competitors use. Their igniters are rated for over 270 years of everyday grilling. Can't find that anywhere else. They've brought back old school customer service too, with an emphasis on making everyone feel like a member of the Rectech family. They even offer industry leading bumper to bumper warranties on all of their grills and even a 30 day money back guarantee. 
But you know, I'm all about saving money and check this out. You order factory direct. What's that mean? And you cut out the middleman, save some cash. Oh, and all their grills ship for free. In fact, all orders over $99 ship for free. The flagship model, the RT 700 comes with a 40 pound pellet hopper. That's going to offer users about 40 hours of continuous cooking time. It also has 702 square inches of cooking space with Rectex PID Wi-Fi controller and that six year bumper to bumper warranty we were talking about. You can bake, smoke, sear, grill. Hell, you can even dehydrate on these grills, all with the push of a button. And that's why everyone in the know chooses Rectech. Of course, they're very active on social media. They've got a ton of online resources. They even go live every weekday with cooking demonstrations on all their grills. Just visit Rectech.com and follow them on social media. Rectech is more than a grill. It's a lifestyle. So we'll see you at Rectech. Uh, so from the fall brawl 95 recap, Meltzer would write, this is tremendous. By the way, they aired a video with Paul Orndorff, quote unquote, depressed after living, losing a match to Randy Savage. They should have at least made it believable and have him depressed after putting over renegade Gary Spivey of the psychic hotline showed up with what looked like a sponge on his head and convinced Orndorff that he really was Mr. Wonderful changing Orndorff's character, the acting by Orndorff in the skit made Hulk Hogan look like an Oscar award winner, but it was almost so bad that it was good. And you and I have talked about this segment before one of the more iconic moments of Paul's WCW career. It happened on a pay-per-view. It was probably just a funny, silly throwaway skit, but boy, this thing has had legs on social media in more recent years. What a classic skit for how bad it was. And I think Meltzer nailed it. It was almost so bad. It was good. Great stuff. Kind of like a lot of Meltzer's writing. (laughs) It's just so fucking horrible. You almost have to read it. Um, it's funny when, you know, Paul pass, I I posted something very respectful because it, it, you know, it, it wasn't a surprise to me. You know, anybody that was, kind of aware of what Paul was going through, you know, he was in tough shape. Um, and I, you know, the first day or two, I was, you know, yeah, I just wasn't at all lighthearted about anything, but by the next day I went, you know what? People don't know Paul, right? People don't know the other side of Paul, that he was a funny, funny, Funny son of a bitch. He wasn't like Cassio kid funny, you know, like once you get him on a roll, he stays funny, you know, for the rest of the evening. Right. But he would have these moments where he would say things that were just the comedic timing and the way he would deliver it was just so perfect that I wanted people to realize is everybody, you know, for the right after Paul pass. It was like, you know, everybody talks about what a great ass wrestler he was and what a great asset he was and, and a great performer. And they talked about the Hogan match and what a great heel he was for Hulk Hogan and how Paul was at least partially, if not more than partially responsible for Hulk Hogan's initial success, all of which is true. And I loved reading all of those comments because Paul deserved that, but I'm thinking nobody gets the other side of Paul. He was a funny fucker. He was just funny. 
And I, and I flash back to that scene with Gary Spivey and actually I went to YouTube and I reposted it Wow, a day after Paul passed, because I want people to also know that, yes, he was this guy. I mean, he was he a legitimate athlete from the time he was early in high school, you know, champion discus thrower, champion shot putter, I think, um, track and field football, you know, recruited in the NFL. I mean, he was a legitimate athlete, you know, pre-wrestling. And in wrestling, he was able to make that transition. Unlike, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people have a hard time making that transition. And one of the other things I thought, and I'm glad we're doing this podcast because I wanted to make the point of social media and I forgot and I got busy with some other personal stuff, but Kurt Angle, Paul Orndorff. Wow. In many respects. Wow. Are the same kind of cat. I'm not putting Paul's athletic skill and achievements on the same level as Kurt's. I'm not. Of course. But just step back. Two amazing athletes. Two badasses. Everybody knows it. Yeah. And two guys that could make you fold fold in half, pissing yourself laughing in certain situations. They both had that comedic sense to them. Some of Kurt's best work, and I've talked about this a million times, in different interviews, probably on this podcast, Kurt Angle was a cat that he could wrestle on Monday night and convince you that he was the most dangerous human being to draw breath. And then on Tuesday night, he'd make you laugh your ass off. He could do both equally as well and transition with no issue whatsoever. Paul was kind of like that. And that, that scene with Danny Spivey was an example of it. No, no, Paul wasn't a great actor. Just like Dave Meltzer's not a good writer. But Paul was funny. He had a natural, unlike Meltzer, Paul had a natural talent. And it, it just it reminded me so much of part of Paul that I loved being around. So I went when Paul and I hung out, we'd leave a building, and this didn't happen often. I don't want to paint the picture that we hung out a lot. We didn't. But if once we got away from wrestling, when Paul called me up and said, hey, let's go quail hunting or let's go you know, hog hunting. Um, from the time we got, we, we'd always meet at the Waffle House, not too far from where Paul lived. Of course, lived. had to. Had to. That's, you know, it was right up the road from where Paul lived. But by the time we had breakfast at the Waffle House, before the food got there, we were done talking about wrestling and never came up again for the rest of the weekend. Cause he was just fun to be around. He had, he was, he was just, he was a riot. He was a funny dude. Garrett and I had some, I'm not even going to go into them here. Cause they're too ridiculous, but. Oh no. Give us one. Give us one crazy Paul Orndorff hunting story or, or fishing trip or whatever. It's, you know, it wasn't a moment. It was kind of like the whole scene that was crazy, but Paul knew that both Garrett and I loved the hunt. So Paul wanted us to go down. He had a friend that owned a, big hog hunting plantation um, down in South Georgia. He goes, Oh, you're going to love these guys. The guys owns a place. He's a retired game warden. So um, that's cool. You know, probably knows where the best hunting is and you know, probably well-connected. So that's cool. He goes, but they're a little different. So, okay. I'm a little different. I can get along with a little different. There's no big deal there. It's hunting, man. Everybody's a little different. So we've, Garrett and I get down there and this guy comes up 
to meet us. The whole family comes out because it's a family-owned plantation. And a family comes out to meet us. And the patriarch of the family, who is the ex-game warden, comes out in a wheelchair. Blind as a bat. Couldn't see anything. Obviously could hear us, so he knew where to look. I go on to hear that the reason he's blind is because he drank too much of the bad moonshine that he was making. And the reason he was in a wheelchair is because prior to going blind, he was drinking too much of the bad moonshine he was oh no drinking. And while he was in his Department of Natural Resource vehicle, he drove himself off the road into a ditch and ended up in a wheelchair. And that's how it started. That's how I say Garrett got introduced to moonshine. He was what <laughs> 14 at that time. And there was this big giant tree. I, I think it was an Oak tree, but it may not have been, may have been a different kind of tree, but the thing was about eight feet around. It was huge. And Paul Orndorff is out there talking about the history of hog hunting and how much it's meant to the state of Georgia while sharing some homemade moonshine that evidently blinded the guy in the wheelchair. And I thought to myself, God, am I, am I going to go down as the worst parents in history tonight or what? But Top 10. Top 10. He's got his vision though. Garrett's doing great. So it worked great. out. Garrett's doing great. He's laugh about that trip because there's a lot of other stories that are just not appropriate, but that's Paul was fun, man. Paul was a fun dude to hang out with. By the way, uh, moonshine. I know that seems like something you only see on TV. It is a part of, uh, the rural South. And I met a guy years ago who lived, uh, in Southern Tennessee, who, uh, tried to push some moonshine on me. And I reluctantly took it. It was not for sale. It was a gift and can't refuse a gift. They gave me this stuff that was pink in color and it was in a Mason jar and he referred to it as pink Panther piss. And he told me to be, be careful to mix it 50, 50 with water. Whenever I was going to actually have some or serve some. And I said, okay, I'm just, I'm curious. Why am I doing a 50, 50 mix? And he said with a straight face, because that shit will split your goddamn pancreas in half. Uh, so the next time you're here at the Conradison, Eric, I will show you my unopened jar of pink Panther piss that I am not going to ever open unless, you know, no. you and Garrett stop by and decide to do a 50, 50 mix. No, that ain't happening. <laughs> I've, 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 I've had samples of moonshine and actually Garrett got into making it for a while, believe it or not. Um, but if you knew Garrett a little bit better, you, you would have no hard time believing it. But I, I just, I can't, I can't do it, man. I just, ugh, it's too much. It's too much. I totally agree. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. We're going to talk about nitro here. Um, December 11th in Charlotte quote, they did an angle to make sure flair was being booed by having flair Pillman and Anderson. Chris Benoit was in Japan, destroy Orndorff with a stuffed pile driver on the floor. And they put a neck brace on Orndorff and carried him out and sent him away in an ambulance on television. I believe Orndorff is undergoing some type of surgery. So this was a storyline to explain his absence. What was happening was his entire right side of his body was starting to develop atrophy, not just his arm, but now his leg. 
what do you remember about this? Why was this the right time or the right way rather to, uh, to write Orndorff out and why the horseman? I mean, is it just to make sure that you're, you're getting heat on flair in Charlotte? That would have been a primary consideration. <clears throat> of course, Paul had an issue with, uh, nerve damage, pinched nerves. I think he had a, basically a neck injury. Um, he was scheduled for the surgery. We needed heat. He was in a match. We typically, you know, when you know, somebody's going in for surgery and whether it's a knee or a neck or a back or whatever it is, you orchestrate some kind of scripted injury that would be consistent with not only the fact that, you know, Paul or anybody else was going to be gone for a while, but when they came back, it would probably be apparent that they were still, you know, recovering from that injury. So it just kind of made sense. It was logical. Can you hear my dog throwing that bone around underneath my desk? I can. I wondered if she had gotten into your Jesus beer bottles Lord. or what. Here, Nick. Nikki making a rare appearance here on the show. Come on up here and say hello, Nick. Come on up here. There she is. Oh, look at there. Give a There's dog a my bone. Girl. Ain't she pretty old? Ain't she pretty old? You can see the video on YouTube or adfreeshows.com if you want to see uh, Nikki the Wonder Dog that you see on Eric's social media. Uh, when he when he does this injury angle, is there a hope that Paul would be able to have some sort of surgery and return to action? Or did he know this is me going out of my shield? This is it for my in ring career. I, I, I mean, I can't speak for Paul. I don't know what was going through his mind, but I would imagine like a lot of guys, you hope for the best, you stay optimistic and you hope that this surgery is going to actually give you the opportunity to come back and extend your career for months or a year or two or whatever. Um, I'm sure Paul knew in the back of his mind that this was it. You know, we're talking a lot today about how Paul Orndorff didn't get that life-changing surgery that maybe would have saved his arm because he couldn't walk away from the money. 20 grand a week is the rumor in innuendo, what he was making with the WWF at the time. If you're really interested in making money, you've probably heard a lot about crypto. Maybe you might even find yourself as crypto curious. If you've thought about entering the world of cryptocurrency and maybe felt a little overwhelmed, Coinbase makes learning to buy and sell simple. You see, cryptocurrency might feel like an exclusive club or a secret club or something like that, but the reality is Coinbase believes that everyone everywhere should be able to get in the door. Whether you've been trading for years or you're just getting started, Coinbase can help. Coinbase offers a trusted and easy to use platform to buy, sell, and spend cryptocurrency. They support the most popular digital currencies on the market and make them accessible to everyone. They offer portfolio management and protection, learning resources, and a mobile app. So you can trade securely and monitor your crypto all in one place. Millions of people in over a hundred countries trust Coinbase with their digital assets. Whether you're looking to diversify, just getting started, or searching for a better way to access crypto markets, start today with Coinbase. For a limited time, new users can get $5 in free Bitcoin. When you sign up today at coinbase.com forward slash 83 weeks, sign up at coinbase.com forward slash 83 weeks for $5 in free Bitcoin. This offer is for a limited time only. So be sure to sign up today. That's $5 in free Bitcoin. That's coinbase.com forward slash 83 weeks. You sort of touched on, uh, Paul working at the power plant earlier. I kind of got the impression from our conversation today that you became much closer to him 
once he was a part of the power plant than you did when he was an in-ring competitor. Is that fair to say? Yeah, because we spent more time together. You know, when Paul was an agent, when Paul was in a power plant, I had more opportunity to interact and get to know Paul better. So that was the beginning of us developing that friendship is during that period of time. On a day-to-day basis or a week-to-week basis, were you interfacing with Paul or is it more of a see you when I see you thing? I, I don't know what your routine looks like. I mean, how often were you visiting the power plant? How often was he coming to the office? I didn't visit the power plant often. You know, I would go down once or twice a week, basically. You know, it was close. It was easy for me to swing in and see what was going on and let the people that were in the power plant know that even though they weren't in the CNN center, that they were still very much a vital part of, of WCW. And that was part of it, really, as, as more often than that. That's why I went there. Um, so I would certainly see Paul there, but Paul was in the office quite a bit. Paul was in the office almost every day. And then would go down to the power plant and Paul would often frequently same thing, I guess, uh, stop into my office and we would visit for 45 minutes, an hour, sometimes a day, uh, just catching up and talking about what was going on in the power plant and who he saw potential in and why he saw that potential and talk about honey or whatever else we talked about. But yeah, I, I, I interface with Paul almost I don't know if it was every day, but several close. times a week. Yeah. Pretty Do you remember close. there being a talent that he brought to your attention in the power plant? Like Eric, this guy's unbelievable. You got to see this guy, something like that. I'm sure there were because Paul was once, once Paul embraced his role at the power plant, once he realized that he wasn't going to lose his job and all of the things that come with having to face the fact that your career in the ring is over with. Once he embraced it, he was, he was, I said this early in this podcast, he was like a, he was childlike in his enthusiasm. So I'm sure that there were, but I I can't think of anybody off the top of my head that stood out in those conversations. Who were Paul's friends in WCW besides yourself? Like in terms of other performers, people of power plant, do you recall? Rick Steiner for sure. Rick Rude. For sure. Those are the ones that stand out. Kurt Henning. Paul liked Kurt a lot. Those are the ones that stood out to me. Real random. Was Paul Orndorff a big country music fan? Paul Orndorff was pretty much country everything. So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just imagined based on that list you just made. Yeah, I know. I, I, you know, I never heard Paul listening to, you know, classic rock or hip hop or really, I thought Paul uh, would have had some Tupac for sure. Maybe not. No, no. Paul's taste in music was probably Porter Wagner. Oh Lord. That's yeah. a... <laughs> so Paul comes back in late 99 after you were, um, <clears throat> sent home and he worked one match against Ryan and Don Harris in a losing effort and then made another return in 2000 which featured him becoming paralyzed to the ring from delivering a pile driver at fall brawl, which is one of the scarier moments in wrestling. What did you think of the decision to, to put it back in the ring and how did he get cleared? Or was that even a thing y'all did back then? It certainly wasn't as much of a thing as it is now. <clears throat> Usually like if talent came in and said, here's my doctor signing off on this. 
Okay. I know it's horrible to say, but that was, that's the way it was. It is what it is. It was what it was. No, I mean, back then, man, people would get a concussion and, they, and we would say, oh, he got his bell wrong. You know, just let him rub some dirt on it. He'll be fine in the next play. I mean, well, a, guys would yeah, miss a play and they'd be right back two plays later. And again, I don't want to make this sound like a legal thing. Cause it was not really it was the excuse, but no, you got an independent contractor. They're under, under contract. You've got to pay them. They get hurt. There's certain th- protocols, certain things you have to do, but if they come back, if their doctor releases them, it's game on. So I say, no, did you keep <laughs> you up? I don't with- care what your doctor says. Fuck your doctor. Where, you know, was what it was certainly wasn't sufficient and needed more oversight and a different protocol, but that's what it was back then. Do you, um, you know, listen, we've talked about this before, sometimes on the podcast, I'm sure, but I know in real life that, uh, everybody has quote unquote work friends, you know? you see them every day or a couple times a week and you catch up with them, but then, you know, you move on to another job or they move on to another job and you just don't stay in contact with them as much. And I know that you're, uh, you've admitted here on the show that you're not a great phone person. It's just not really your thing. If you run into Paul Orndorff in a bar, then you guys would pick up where you left off. Like nothing happened. I'm sure. But when WCW goes down, did you have any further communication with Paul besides seeing him at a random signing here or there? Well, I didn't do random sign. You know, when WCW went down, I didn't do I didn't do any signings till about five years ago. Right. It was just I just never wanted to. Um, no, I didn't. You know, it's like one. It's a regret, and I, I'll let's try to put this into context for you guys. I didn't, and there was a period of time, like I've, I've tried to talk about me being released from Turner and the way I dealt with it, the timing of it all, when they called me to come back, but there was a period of time when I felt pretty betrayed for a lot of reasons. One in particular that I've never talked about, I'm not sure I will. Certainly not on this show, but I mean, on this episode, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I was, I was angry and I, and it was wrong. I, I was, I was not thinking clearly. I was not thinking as a mature adult, I was hurt in, in many respects. I really, really felt betrayed. In general, not by certainly not by Paul. Don't don't let me take you down that path. But just in general, and my attitude was, fuck it. It was what it was. It is what it is. Move on. Which is generally how I deal with things, for better or worse. <clears throat> but because I took that attitude, and it's probably you know self protection, I guess. In a yeah. Way, yeah. Um, because I took on that attitude other than diamond Dallas page and Hulk. I didn't talk to anybody, including Janie Engel for a while. I just, 
I don't know. It's hard for me to articulate how betrayal affects me, but it does. Probably of all the things somebody can do to me, um, betraying trust is probably the one that is the most offensive to me. Um, and that's the way I felt. So I went for a while. I, nobody, not Rick, Rick and I went, fuck Rick and I went elk hunting up in the Yukon together. You know, I mean, there were a lot of people that I was really close, even DDP, although he lived down the street from me, it was rare that he and I would have a conversation during that period of time. I just wanted I wanted to be left alone. It's pretty much the way I reacted. And I'll never forget. I think it was in 2003. Paul Orndorff, I was at the, I was at a hall of fame ceremony, WWE. I think it was the night that Vern Gagne was inducted. I'm, I'm correct. And I, I hadn't seen or talked to Paul in a couple of years. There's that weakness in my personality, you know, kind of made that happen. I guess. Orndorff went in in 05, Vern went in in 06. Okay. Then it was then. It might've been 05. Maybe it was 06. Fuck. I don't know. Doesn't matter. It was a hundred years ago. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, and Paul came up to me. This is, uh, this is, uh, I gotta be careful here. No, you don't. No, I do. Cause otherwise I'll just be a fucking puddle. That's fine. No, it's not. And I, Paul came up to me and he said, Eric, I thought we were friends. Hmm. I said, of course we're friends, Paul. Of course we're friends. So I haven't heard a word from you. I still remember that. And I try to remember that lesson because I learned that lesson that night from Paul. And even though I get lost in my own shit. We all do. um, I can't forget that. Maybe because that's the way I was feeling. It certainly wasn't because of Paul. Paul didn't betray me in any way. But when I kind of turned my back on everybody for a while, I wasn't angry at anybody. I just didn't. I just, I wanted to look in the other direction. It's the only way I can say it. Um, And because I didn't stay in touch with certain people, I think it hurt Paul's feelings. And, And when he said that to me, I remember right where we were standing when he said it to me and I I could see it in my mind. Like it happened five minutes ago. It was, it was really an eye opening experience for me. And I realized a little bit about myself that I needed to work on. What do you think? um, I'm going to try to throw you a life preserver here. What do you, what do you think Paul Orndorff's legacy in wrestling will be? I don't know what it will be because everybody looks at things from their own unique little perspectives and experiences. I'll tell you what I hope it is. It's just an amazingly entertaining performer and one of the most honest people you'd ever do business with. I mean, just, you could, you could trust Paul. You could trust Paul with anything. If he was your friend, and you needed Paul, you could trust him with anything. 
whether it's professionally, personally, whatever. He was just such a real, honest person. And that, yeah, the DNA came with some uncomfortable because, you know, people that are generally honest and unfiltered will sometimes say things that you wish would be, you know, dressed a little better. <laughs> but when you know a guy like Paul and you know that he may say something in, in, in that spirit of honesty, he may not articulate it as eloquently as some, but his intent was 100% honest and not selfish. And I hope people remember that. There's very few honest people left in the world, man. Paul was one of them. Pardon the interruption, but I wanted to tell you real quickly about two of the best ways to support 83 Weeks. One is to pick up a shirt from ericbischoff.com. Another is to grab a gimmick from boxagimmicks.com. It's the official store of 83 Weeks. Not only does this support the show financially, but you get to show off your fandom to others, helping spread the word about one of the best podcasts around. So check out ericbischoff.com and boxagimmicks.com. And thank you for listening to 83 Weeks. He was a remarkable performer, and um, unfortunately, I missed most of his in-ring career. You know, it's it's pretty crazy to think about. He became such a big legend and achieved so much. But really, on top, he's, I mean, when he's on the big stage, I mean, national TV, he's there like five or six years in total. But people are still talking about his feud with Hulk Hogan. And I think you could argue he's got one of, if not the best pile driver in pro wrestling history. And he had this bodybuilder physique and he was so believable and drew so much money with Hulk Hogan. But then there's all these bigger than life stories. And, uh, I know you don't necessarily love the observer or Dave Meltzer, but I'm going to send you the obituary that, that, that Dave wrote about it because he detailed some really incredible stuff stories of fights with, with Tony Atlas and, um, well, a little gentleman's bet that maybe wasn't all that polite that I think Paul won that is probably not suitable for radio here, but what a phenomenal performer. And he did so much. And I was so glad to see him. Uh, I don't know that you and I've ever talked about this, but the first WrestleMania I ever went to was WrestleMania 30. And because it was like the original anniversary of WrestleMania, They had Hulk Hogan and Mr. T and Roddy Piper and Pat Patterson. And of course there he was Mr. Wonderful. And you always heard so many great things about him. Even a few years ago when he was first going through some health problems that he stole the show at the cauliflower alley club, you know, just by opening his heart. And it's not necessarily a guy that you would expect that from as a younger man, but what a life he lived. He passed away July 12th. So. As you're listening to this just a week ago, only 71 years old, uh, born October 29th, 1949, just a superstar as a high school athlete nicknamed the Brandon bull uh, from Brandon, Florida and university of Tampa and drafted the NFL. And it's just what a remarkable life. And I wonder, and Meltzer even sort of freestyled because he had such a reputation as a street fighter and even did some underground fights for money before he transitioned into wrestling. Boy, if MMA was a thing back then, can you imagine Paul Orndorff? Woo. Yeah. In early MMA, when it was basically human cockfighting, he'd have beat some ass. He would, he'd have chewed some motherfuckers up (laughs) That's for sure. It's unbelievable. And you mentioned hero Matsuda earlier, but 
guys like Hulk Hogan and the great Muda and Paul Orndorff and Scott Hall and Lex Luger and Ron Simmons and Bob Orton. What a pedigree. And he, you know, works some of the territories, whether it's Georgia or Memphis or all over. But then ultimately I think his legacy, in my opinion, will probably be that that early push from Vince McMahon when Vince took the WWF national and you know, all of the stuff he did, not only at WrestleMania, but just with Hogan. I mean, there was, you talk about old school heat. He used to come out to Hulk Hogan's theme song. So the fans would get all excited thinking, oh my God, here he is. That's our hero. And nope, it's Paul Orndorff. See, and you know, I've, uh, God, I love hearing that story. I love hearing this. That's great. <laughs> shit, man. I could, I could, I can close my eyes and see Paul doing it and know how much he loved heat. Oh, he would do Paul, the, the ear cupping and the whole thing. Oh, he loved heat. He's a, most too many talent today play the role of a heel. He was because that's what they're asked to do. And they, they got to do what they're asked to do. Very few of them love heat, love heat. Paul loved heat. He loved it. And you can say what you, I mean, clearly Hulk's one of my best friends, arguably in my opinion, we wouldn't be watching what we're watching today if it wouldn't have been for the combination of Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan, <clears throat> not putting it all in Hulk, but timing, personalities, opportunity, blah, 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 blah. But Hulk would not have been the, the, the baby face that Hulk became had he not had the heel to get him there. Paul was one of them. And Paul was the guy who betrayed Hogan. I mean, that's really the whole storyline is. Paul was a good guy and he was teaming with Hogan. And then he turns his back on Hogan and joins Bobby Heenan and man, what a pair that was. And I know that's not really happening on your watch, but you can't talk about Paul Orndorff and not talk about him and Heenan and turning on Hogan. And it's worth mentioning the turn would set the WWF's business on fire. Now this is really pre-internet obviously in 86. So it's not as if, um, there's a ton of tape out there or that people were talking about it. But if this were happening today, I mean, check this information out. August 28th, 1986, the exhibition stadium in Toronto, and it drew 64,100 fans, 61,000 of those were paying customers. And this again is not here in America. It's not a WrestleMania it's in Canada and they did a million dollar house. And, and, you know, 12 years later, you're tickled when you guys finally do, or almost do a million dollar house when the business was on fire, you know, the NWO and Goldberg and all that. It's a big goal of yours. And dude, he hit it in 86. No, and think about it. Here's another thing. Think about what cable television was in 1986. Yeah. Like now we're so, you know, cable televisions, you know, 98% of the U S back then cable television was still kind of a new thing. Yeah. It had been around for a little bit, a couple of years, really, but cable wasn't back then what cable is today. Um, you know, if you were, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm pulling numbers out of thin air. I'm not suggesting that I'm accurate here, but by way of kind of illustrating an example, if the USA Network, you know, 
this year is available in 98% of the United States. Back in 1986, it was probably available in 40% of the United States. Yeah. So or that maybe less. Yeah. Yeah. Or less somebody like Brandon Thurston or somebody that really, you know, actually spends time doing real research. will be able to probably correct that, but just to help put it in context, it was massive, but you know, as they always say, but in today's standard or in today's economy, it would be worth, you know, that's a massive amount of success yeah. back then. I mean, kind of hard to comprehend actually. I want to mention too, if you're looking for things to enjoy, to sort of celebrate, um, Paul Orndorff's in ring career, I want to recommend the blow off of the Hogan feud. It's a classic steel cage match on Saturday night's main event. Both guys are going to escape and land on the floor, but Hogan lands first. So he wins and the place is just electric. And also want to mention, and again, I appreciate context. We always say here on the show, context is King. August 28th, 1986, where this would have been the SummerSlam time of year, but SummerSlam is not a thing. So what are we marching towards? Well, the only big show we have, which is WrestleMania. And when you're drawing a million dollars in Canada with the perfect opponent for Hogan, it seems like you would blow that off at WrestleMania three, but of course they go with Andre and it's crazy to think. Paul Orndorff's not even on WrestleMania three. And I don't think it was a slight as the rumor and innuendo goes, he was the backup plan in case Andre couldn't perform in the ring. Andre was hurting. He was in an advanced age. And if they needed somebody to slide into that spot, who better than Paul Orndorff? Of course it didn't happen. So instead from a mainstream standpoint, maybe being on Saturday night's main event was even bigger. You're on NBC and what a show. Either way, the career's cut way, way too short. We know that that happened in uh, March or April of 87. And, and by January of 88, Paul's done because of that injury. And supposedly as the rumor and innuendo goes, Paul just landed wrong, taking a clothesline from, from Hulk Hogan and winds up hurting himself. He's got herniated discs in his neck and his shoulders in bad shape. And the doctor wants to do surgery immediately. But in 1986, when you're making or 1987, when you're making 20 grand a week, you're not going anywhere. And, uh, especially a guy like Paul who grew up as a young kid, you know, he estranged from his father at a very early age, grew up very poor, you know, grew up in a tough world in a tough life as a young kid and to walk into that kind of money. Yeah. Not walking away again, knowing Paul, fucking way he's walking away from that kind of money. If the doctor said you may only have a year to live unless you get this surgery, Paul was not going to walk away from that money. What a story, man. What a, uh, once in a lifetime performer. We got some fan questions. Then we'll wrap this one up. We hope we've done tribute to your great friend, Mr. Paul Orndorff. And I appreciate you sharing that conversation you had with Paul, because I think there's a lesson for all of us there. Let's jump into these questions. Uh, ringside rant friend of the show wants to know, Eric, do you think it was just a matter of timing as to why Paul never held the world title? That's interesting too, because I feel like a lot of times when you hear who's the best wrestler to never ho- hold a world title, 
very few people say Paul's name. And I got to think it's just because his, his run on national TV was so brief, but man, what a performer. It was brief and it was timing. You know, if you go back and I, and I can't recall enough of Paul's, um, early career in football to, to do justice to it. I think JR could probably do a better job than I could, but you know, Paul was on the verge of becoming a, having a pretty good opportunity in NFL in the NFL. And one of the coaches on the teams that he was on at the time decided to move Paul out of, I think he was in a linebacker position or no, he was a running back or something, whatever he was, whatever his position was. And they made him a tight end. Paul wasn't a tight end. Right. Paul, Paul had good hands, but he didn't have the speed. He didn't have the height. He wasn't tall enough to be a good tight end. And Paul got just he completely lost interest in the NFL. I mean, he, he was on a great role. Paul, I don't know, could have been possibly, you know, a great NFL player and had a great run in the NFL. Coach made a decision, wanted to try to turn him into a tight end. Didn't work out. Paul got disappointed. And that's one of the things that led him into wrestling. If I remember the story correctly. I've read that. He, not, so feel free to correct me if, if I'm wrong, well, not I, you, but I know he was drafted by the saints in the 12th round in 1973, but I think in training camp, he said he just got homesick, which may have been, he was frustrated with what the coach wanted him to try, but he even gets to camp in 74 with the bears. But once again, was homesick and left, but this is a guy who certainly had NFL aspirations and, and on multiple occasions, opportunities, but wound up pursuing wrestling and, and wrestling was better because he did. It's, uh, you just can't help, but wonder, man, had he gotten that surgery, would he have had a, a second act in WCW or, or hypothetically had Andre not been able to perform. Oh gosh. What would history have been? Had it been Orndorff and Hogan? I mean, even the next year in, in, in 88, could it have been, you know, he would have been a perfect opponent for Savage. You know, he's like 5'10, 5'11. Yep. I mean, he would have been perfect for him. Uh, it's just, it's fun to think about what could have been. And I'm glad that we got to talk a little bit about one of the all time greats, Paul Orndorff. Go out of your way to, uh, to check him out. He had a look like no other. He had a pile driver, like no other. And unfortunately there will never be another Paul Orndorff. So make time to uh, go check it out. And I know that you don't necessarily love everything else, but Eric, I think you're going to dig the, uh, the write-up that Meltzer did because he told, no, I'm, a, a I'm anxious to see it. Now Dave does write good, uh, obituaries or whatever you want to call them, but he does do a great job. You know, when people pass along, he does his research and he, 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 he does a good job. So I'm anxious to see it actually. We're going to be back next week and we are going to get back on track talking about all things NWO. We've got some big things planned. We actually had something planned big this week, but we called an audible because we just felt like it was the right thing to do. Uh, but we'll be back on track with all things NWO next week. We've also got a very fun, ask Eric, anything coming up. We're going to be talking about clash of the champions. 33. We'll briefly press pause on all things NWO to talk about the nitro from 1999, where you brought kiss onto the scene. That's right. Gene Simmons and kiss, uh, lots of fun stuff coming. Uh, be sure to check out social too, because I think you're going to have a video of your Wagyu steaks. And now I'm curious how they turned out on the rec tech. I know the rec tech does their job. I'm not sold on your marinade though. Well, the rec tech, 
Actually, here, as we speak, I want to do this live because it's just so much fun for me. Like every once in a while, I find this little piece of technology, like right here. Yep. I got to hold it up in a way that you can see it. Get it closer to the camera. Yeah, I see that. Okay. That's my rec tech app. So I'm going to hit start cooking. And it takes me right to the name of my grill, which is 83 meats. <laughs> I named my grill 83 meats. That's tremendous. And, and now, as you can see, all I got to do is turn it on. And it's on. Wow. And now I'm going to set the temperature for 225 degrees. And the temperature is set at 225 degrees. And as we sit here, my grill, which is about, I don't know, 1,200 feet away from my house. As we sit here, my grill is starting to fire up so that when I leave here, shut everything down, I'll be ready to put my steaks on the grill. Fucking awesome is that. Well, have one for Paul today, and uh, we'll be back. I will. We'll be back next week with more 83 weeks and it'll be a happier topic. We'll be talking about all things NWO. He is at E Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. You can find our show at 83 weeks. Uh, and of course you're going to get all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. We'll see you next week right here on cumulus podcast. It's your favorite Monday show, baby. It's 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Okay. If you've listened to this show for very long by now, you know what you're thinking. I hate Steven singer too. And you're darn right you do, because we've told you loudly and proudly that he is one of our favorite people to do business with, and he's going to be yours too, but unfortunately he eliminates all of the excuses. Here's what I mean. Finding that person you want to spend the rest of your life with is great, but man, do we hate all the pressure of what's next? Of course, there's all the engagement talk, but then there's the pressure from actually shopping for a ring, hassle, haggling, finding a store to trust trying to figure out what the heck the four C's are discounts, sales, coupons, styles, and all the other nonsense. It's overwhelming, but at least those are all fantastic reasons to put off getting engaged. That's why this guy's really hate Steven singer. He takes away every excuse in the book for not buying the ring. And he makes it so easy. I hate Steven singer. Steven singer is a Philly jeweler and icon. That's been making it too easy to buy real diamonds for over four decades. He specializes in diamond engagement rings and has a staff of real experts, real jewelers, real people that are ready to help you find the perfect ring or gift at the perfect price. No call center, no sales, no haggling, no codes or discounts, just the best possible price guaranteeing the best value every single day. Check Steven out at the other corner of eighth and Walnut in Philly or online at IHateStevenSinger.com. Always with fast and free shipping. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.